so Obsidian plugins, there are loads of them, loads of core plugins, and I've explained all of the core plugins in my video that's coming out Monday. Um, so it should be out by the time this is done. But community plugins, there's 669, last time I checked, there's probably 670 plus now. Uh, and some of them are broken, some of them are outdated, some of them are really useful, but there are other things like you've shared uh, that aren't actually in the plugins list that are just on GitHub that still work with Obsidian. The API scraper that you shared with me that could work with Obsidian, I had this question. And I was like, okay, this is going to be really cool. But why do I need it? And that, that's mm. the question that I asked. I asked myself with all the community plugins, like, why do I need it? What is exactly my use case for this thing? And apart from the ConvertKit use case that we discussed, I couldn't find one. Yeah. So I then had to question myself, okay, is it worth me spending potentially an entire day figuring this thing out to get some numbers into my obsidian or focus on like any of the other many things I'm meant to be doing? <laughs> I'm sure you can guess. I decided not to have a look at the API. <laughs> well, that's just depressing. I was looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I did share the live sync plugin as well with you. Yeah, I did see that one. I debated about going down that rabbit hole, but setting it up requires a CD something or other or a cloud bloat something database thing. I just develop a shit. I don't know what words are. Yeah. But basically yeah, it did to... look it did look a bit like intense. Yeah, I mean when you when you download the plug or when you install the plugin, there are loads of settings. Like there's a whole wizard inside of the Obsidian, which fine if you're a developer. Like I was talking to Bass, and he said, "Oh yeah, you just do this and you just do that, and then you're fine." I'm like, "Yeah, but the just do bit, you're talking developer again. Like the just do of the setup takes me like 20 minutes. I I I legitimately spent half an hour looking at this thing trying to set it up, and it wouldn't work. I was like, I can't be effed with this anymore. I'm just gonna." I'm going to go do something else. Um, so I did. <laughs> uh, but I think it's a really good start because it's only like two months old. Um, and to get live sync into an Obsidian app and it's only being two months old, I think is a pretty good start. Uh, yeah. The thing that I understand now is essentially you're they're using a database service that stores all the syncing, like the live syncing backwards and forwards. The VS Code version uses Windows servers, which is understandable. But Obsidian obviously have servers because they use sync. So potentially Obsidian in the future could have live sync, but on their servers. That would be pretty cool if they did that. And that would be a really nice addition. I think that would push Obsidian out of the... Hole they're sort of in, like it's not a bad hole. <laughs> it's just a, a hole alone, as the the podcast that went out today sort of discussed. It's it's by itself because it's not cloud based, because it's not live sync. But I also think that it's only just launched as well. And if you think about Notion's history. Notion's pre-launch didn't do very well. It wasn't until Notion, I think it was 2.0 or 3.0. It was 2 when they introduced databases. Because when version, they introduced databases. Version 1, I was like, 
I mean, I can use this, but it's basically like Word. Version 2 came out with databases. So I was like, hold up a sec. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I I have a, a hope, being completely biased, that that's what's actually going to happen, is that now that they've officially launched and they're not messing around and they've gone for 1.0, I think more people will be like, oh, well, it's a complete software. It's a fully featured application. I might actually come in and give it a go. Um, versus where before it was very like, oh, this is not a full release. Like, oh, it may not work. It may not stay. It may disappear, et cetera, et cetera. And so for people who aren't in the like the bleeding edge of technology, who like to be, who don't like to be on the bleeding edge, this now might now that they're 1.0 and i'm noticing there's a lot more videos popping up now there's a number of people who are specifically i've i've, I've been watching them but the the views are like 20 views 40 yeah. views they're very low unless yeah. they're about something that's big like data view if you know what i mean and even then they're still quite low yeah well low but not like this this is one of those things ali and i was speaking about this when i went to a studio and spoke uh obsidian is at the point where notion was it's kind of like if you put notion in the thumbnail you just get loads of clicks and obsidian's at that point on youtube now where you put obsidian in the thumbnail you get loads of clicks the reason the views aren't massive is because the channels aren't massive but when you look at the relative comparison like and there's a channel, I can't remember the name, but they've got like 400 and something subscribers. They've done three Obsidian videos and they've got a thousand views for each video. Now, a thousand views isn't much, but when you compare that number to the subscribers, you're like, hold up, what? And that's, that's the same quite with a me. Bit, yeah, it's relative, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Notion, when I started, I started with like 36 subscribers was when I first did my Notion video, the first Notion video I did. And the first Notion video I did got like 500 views and I was blown away because the most views I had in the video at that point was 100. And I was like, hold up, what is going on here? And Obsidian's in the same space. You have any sort of channel talking about Obsidian and you can double their subscriber count just by one Obsidian video. Uh, And I've, I've seen, there's a couple of channels as well that I've seen where I was, I was looking at their channel. Then they posted an Obsidian video I look back two weeks later, the video's got like 3,000 views and the channel has tripled in size, subscriber size. Nice. And I think Obsidian, I, I saw Tiago tweet about the rise and fall of Obsidian trends. I'm like, no, you're talking about Twitter. You're not talking about the actual trends on Google. Because when you look at Obsidian on Google Trends, Notion's going down. Obsidian is either maintaining or going up. And I think with the version one release, it's going to go up especially if some of the bigger creators on the platform start talking about it. Yeah. GCP Gray, are you familiar with the channel? Yes. He uses Obsidian. Yeah. He's been using Obsidian for over a year. If he speaks about Obsidian, now it's version one, like, okay, that's a a 3 million channel boost. I know Ali's using Obsidian. So if he talks about it, then you've got the student boost. Thomas Frank isn't going to talk about it because he's all in on Notion, but you get some bigger creators talking about it. I, I would be intrigued. I'm kind of intrigued because I remember at one point um, Ali was going to go all in on Notion and then he decided not to, didn't he? Ish. Like, he's he's all in on Notion for team. Yeah. But now he's writing the book. Um, so I've spoken, obviously, you know, I've spoken to him a little bit. Um, now he's writing the book. Notion just doesn't work. 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it just doesn't work for writing and note taking. It it just doesn't. Um, and that's like having been to the Notion meetup last week. Was it last week or the week before? Whenever it was. Um, I spoke with the people from Notion, like the representatives from Notion that work with the Notion team. The the Notion development team are focused on teams. They're focused on businesses, the commercial yeah, licenses, of course they are. because that's where the money is. Yeah, and and that's what Notion want to do. And Note and also, take. it's not just that, but if you think about it from a business perspective, they have venture capitalists, the capitalists now. They yeah. have VCs, so they have to please the VCs. Whereas Obsidian is homebrew. It is oh, yeah. very much like they're doing what they want. They don't have to answer to VC funding. They have none of that. And so I, I think I don't think they're going to go that way either. I think they just want to keep it like their own sort of small family, small knit family, which is what I, I like. That's, I think that, yeah, I, exactly. And that for me is what I'm enjoying. One of the things that I struggled with with Notion is is the the shift in the community space for one um, and for two, the shift in the focus for Notion themselves. And it just felt a little jarring for me personally of like whoa this was a nice little you know homebrew app who's you look at the consultants you look at the consultants like it was like notion pros with like five ten people then the ambassadors then whatever it's called now with thousands and there's 50 consultants i know it's crazy and it's great and you know don't i I am one of them both (laughs) You are as well, aren't you now? Because you did it, finally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did it like, right as I moved are... to Obsidian. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, like, both of us are certified Notion consultants. We both know what we're doing in Notion. But also, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a very different industry in Notion now. Like, mm. it's not what it was when it first started. It wasn't a small group of people really passionate about an app. I mean, they're still passionate about the app. But the passion, I think, for many of the newer blood is earning money, which is mm. completely fine, you know? Something I will say about the the notion of Sidian sort of like battle backwards and forwards is that I'm, I'm seeing more and more people use Notion, use other tools like MakeHQ or to make.io and, and loads of other integration stuff. It's kind of like Notion's great, but doesn't do all these things that we want it to do. So I'm going to go outside, go yes. elsewhere and use tools and bring it into Notion. I mean, you do the yes. same in ConvertKit. You bring yes. things from ConvertKit to Notion, which is great. It's fine. But a lot of the things that people I'm seeing are going outside to do, other apps already do, and you don't need the outside bit. Yes, yeah. there are still integrations where you need to go outside and come in. Like if you're looking for YouTube videos, con- uh, uh, convert here or media or anything like that. But there are still what I would class as simple automations, but they don't need to be automations. That if a notion you need to go outside and come in, like recurring tasks is a perfect example. Yeah, they've got the recurring duplicate thing going on now in Notion, which I'm guessing they're going to put in databases eventually. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Obsidian, yeah. Angular, Rome, I, they've got like what I would class as simple automations, which Notion still doesn't have. And I'm yeah. baffled. Yeah. And I think it's, I think probably because it's the the base itself of the software because of how, yeah, the code base itself isn't designed for it. And I think 
my guest suspicion is this app turned out to be way bigger than they ever thought it was going to be. <laughs> That's the same for every app that does well, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it, especially with Notion, I think their success has dragged them down a little bit in some in some ways. I'd say sideways. Yeah, it's cut. Yeah, it's pulled them sideways, and it's shifted the whole way it works. And well, it's just when you think about the messaging that you first saw it was a note-taking app all in one workspace build your own app well it's not a build your own app anymore because there's tons of integrations all over the place and you're actually kind of restricted in what you can do because of the functionalities it's certainly not a note-taking app and i don't think you could use it as a workspace because like as a as a workspace for an individual user because there are just too many friction points for a lot of individuals. The most obvious one for students is how do you get citations in there? How do you work with PDFs? Anyone that goes to university or uses any sort of university studies, uh, like studies, which is obviously you now because you use PDFs, PDFs and Notion just don't, they just don't mix. Citations and Notion just don't mix. (laughs) No, 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 they really don't. I did it once and I'm never doing it again. I, th- I I think the 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 workspace and it's like the whole workspace thing. It's so specific to teams that you can't really be anything else. And I mean, then you've got the offline situation. The obsidian, uh, the obsidian, the notion still hasn't sorted out. The obsidian does straight away. I mean, in my version one video, I'm I'm using my phone. I'm like, look, it comes up straight away. I don't have that circle. <laughs> it's yeah, but. Yeah, and and that is also the thing. It's like every time I go back into Notion now, I am I am faced with that slowdown, and I'm just like, oh, like I just want to get on with it, and that friction point. And it's interesting because a lot of people are like, it's perfect for ADHD and autism. And I'm like, hmm, don't get me let, started. Let me introduce you to Obsidian, and I will show you how do, how wrong you are. <laughs> because for me. With autism, with that, Obsidian's far better because I don't have to think anymore. I just don't have to think anymore. It's so effortlessly simple that it just doesn't matter what I do. And data view is just beautiful. and, And I am now looking at potentially porting some of my Notion templates over to Obsidian. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) because there is some power in there that is just not available and like because i was one of the only apps that kept drawing my attention for a long time was coda Mm -hmm. yeah but coda is exceptionally extortionately priced i i I do not see that value for me or for most business owners like and not being funny there's nothing you can do in coda that you can't do in obsidian I was about to say that. <laughs> like, because once once I've been watching you and you've been de- developing like what you have and you've now got the inline data view queries, which is basically the only thing in Coda that I like. And isn't Coda's like formulas basically JavaScript as well? Yeah. No- Notion and Coda's formulas is a friendly version of JavaScript. In Obsidian, Whereas- you need to know the JavaScript, which yes, is a friction point, but... Because it's JavaScript, you don't have any of the the friction points that the Notion and Coda stuff have. So, if 
if the the function isn't in Notion or Coda, you can't use it. Yeah, you have to wait for them to add it. And what I want to see is more people sharing the snippets. I know you've got a couple of people, and I've now started to dive into it a a little bit. I want to see more Cody snippets. Right. Like, different ways that you can use data view. And I've been... I've been dipping my toe so far I've been I've kept myself out of that because I don't want to make it any more complicated than it needs to but now I'm in this space of like I'm actually kind of intrigued at what I can do now because I have a basic like I have my base I have my base of my capture of my like organize and of my doing of my actual doing things and so I have that and I feel comfortable with the way it's set up but now I'm intrigued at the cherry on the top pieces. I was looking at um, Podcaster. There's a podcast plugin where you can actually listen to podcasts inside of Obsidian and then capture notes and put it straight in. And I'm like, that replaces read uh, like Air, which I had access to. I like that. And you can do timestamps, captures, and type, which I'm quite frankly loving. Because um, at the moment, I'm, I'm listening to things more than I'm reading. Um and then the next one that I want is something to do with Kindle. Because mm. if I can get my Kindle stuff in, that's it. And I know I can use Readwise, but I don't want to use Readwise. <laughs> yep. Sorry. I don't really want to use Readwise because it breaks the obsidian system that i have now i can customize it completely but i just yeah um yeah i don't want to use readwise <laughs> but if i have to i will yeah that's fair um okay. this isn't a self-plug because there's no money involved but my <laughs> my data view introduction my introduction to data view blog post at the bottom of it there is the um example templates Mm. So it's yes. a community. It's a community vault, community-based vault that's maintained, and there are loads of examples in there. Yes, so, I've seen those. That's what I've. That's one of the things. That's what I was saying about how they're. Yeah. I'm starting to find them. And that, I, that's I where I would another, suggest you go in. Yeah, I watched an, another video, another Obsidian video, um, around like data view and how this person plays D and D, and I was like. Oh, that's just lovely. <laughs> like buttons and everything. I'm just like, yeah, Templator. Templator is insane. Yep. Templator is just insane. And I am barely, I'm like, I'm like here. <laughs> it's scratching itself. I'm, 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 not, I'm not much further than you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like here. And I'm just seeing all the possible things that you can do. And I'm just like, damn, damn this shit is bananas. So something that's really exciting me, which obviously you know, is DB Folder. And the reason it's exciting me is everything you can do in data view, you can do in DB Folder, but you don't need to know the query language. Yeah. Yeah. That that is pretty cool. And I think that might make a big difference for people. Yeah. And because I've seen the roadmap and I've been involved in the GitHub repo a fair bit over the last week or so, I know where it could go. It's got templates already. So imagine a Notion database where you select a template. You don't need the templates in the database because it just searches your vault. (laughs) Mm. 
Yeah. So it's it's the same as a Notion database. You just don't need to put the template in the database because it's already there. You just select one. It works the same way. It inputs the page as the template. So that button's already there. When you think about the properties, you've got a tag property, which puts the tag inside the page. You've got a select property, which is just a drop down. You've got the text. You've got a number property. You've got a date picker property. You've got the time property as well. So all of the, the base core properties are there. Then there is the task data view query, which Notion just doesn't have at all. Um, but you can it automatically picks up the tasks that are in the page. So there's your project management. <laughs> I see you nodding. And then uh, this isn't even to top it off. You have a formula property, which I'm learning. And that formula property is insane. It's it's literally just JavaScript. It's JavaScript there. Yes, you need to understand it, and it's taking a bit of time. And the help documentation could do with some lots of improvement. <laughs> But I mean, it's it's a community plugin that's being built by one person and they've essentially recreated Notion databases there. And I know where they're looking to go forwards in the roadmap. Have a look at the roadmap. It's amazing. They're looking at getting other views in there as well. At the moment, it's just a table, but imagine a calendar view, Kanban view. I, I know you've got the Kanban plugin already and you've got loads of calendar plugins already, but if you've got, because you've already got the calendar view and data view, you just mimic that in the data view page. That's pretty impressive. And it's something that I've been using loads is the group group filter feature. There we go. Which basically, imagine Notion, because I know a lot of people know Notion. And you know when you add a view and you've got like a list view, a table view, whatever, and you've got another view, a grouped filter is just a view. It's a button that you click on and it adds whatever filters you want because it's a grouped filter then inside of that, you can have a group filter. So the and or filters are inside of the database. So you can have a view, a grouped view, that has and or filters in there for any of the properties, YAML, front matter information, inside of the pages. So it literally is, like if you if you were trying to map Notion databases to DB folder, they would be the exact same. A database page in Notion has the properties at the top, that's the same as Obsidian. It's just in YAML and you can see it in words rather than in for formulated properties. And then the actual functions of the database are very, very similar. And you know what? Relation properties already exist because all you need is a text property and put a link in it. <laughs> and roll-up properties are on the roadmap as well. That's going to be insane. Well, it already is. I'm using it for literally everything. Like I've got my daily note. And then I have a projects database page that's starred, but the projects page has got the plugins that I'm working on, the all plugins. So every single plugin in Obsidian, I have a page for it. It's got all of my videos. It's got all of the other projects I'm doing. And all I need to do is just filter it. So it's got the five data view queries that I want to use and go backwards and forwards, but I just push a button and then it opens up the query because it's preset yeah. with buttons that I've pushed in the, in the, in the grouping filters. It's, it is, Notion database is in Obsidian. It just is. It's nice. It is. And something to kind of top it off, excuse me, um, is obviously because it's a page, technically you can inline it because you can transclude it and then embed it. It doesn't look good though. <laughs> no, it's not good yet. Um, but because it is a page and it's just a page in Obsidian, you can use other plugins with it. So you can use Templator with it. 
You can use data view with it. You can use meta edit with it. It's because it's just a page in Obsidian. Oh. Exactly. Oh. It's, it's you're not restricted by having a database because it's just a page. Oh, that is cool. Like the, the, that is, yeah the the database view is just a markdown page which you can go in and edit. I edit some of the colors because I like more exciting colors than stupid pastel rubbish. Um, <laughs> but it's just a page, so you can go into each individual page, edit what you want. The database view changes. You could use template it inside of a page to change the metadata. You can use meta edit to change all the data, or you could use the database view. It's fully customizable. You could forget you've got it. And it still works, it still function. Whereas Notion database, databases is, hey, here's a box. You now can't do certain things with this page. So you could, for example, actually, ooh, that's really kind of cool. I haven't tried using images and videos and embeds and stuff inside of the database view, but I believe that if it's not already available, it will be available soon. And because you can expand, hide, delete columns, because there's just properties, uh, it means you could have like a movie thing in a database view. I'm just thinking, like, for example, one of the, what if you could make that turn in line by adding stuff via the template to plugin? Mm-hmm. Because that's quite exciting. I mean, the template plugin, you can create a calendar from the template. It just like cycles through and loops through things. And like, there's the date, 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 blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you can generate loads of things from template. And because it's just pages, you can recreate the database page using template in any view you want, in any way you want. Yeah, it require some Cody stuff. But once it's been made once, you just copy and paste it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty insane, actually. Uh -huh. Just the possibility of that. Oh yeah, and, and I mean I everything's that... tickable. Yeah, I can, I can tick it. And I think that's the thing is, once you get to that stage, it it obsidian just breaks everything else. <laughs> you just look at it and you go, oh, I can do this in obsidian in a couple of seconds. Tana. Tarn is the perfect example of how I think Tarn is a great example of how people don't grasp what you can do with Obsidian. Yeah. Like from an outsider looking in, I still don't have access to Tarn, but people are saying, oh, you can do this and you can do that. Yeah, you can do it in Obsidian. Yeah, you can do it in Obsidian. Like I, I just don't get it. And I, I have the same feeling with Rome. Like the <laughs> only things you can do in Rome that you would struggle to do in Obsidian are really small nuanced use cases like being able to drag a block from one page to another and have a transclusion a drag and drop of a block but that's a chrome type feature of dragging dropping things i mean yeah in, in obsidian you can you can get the same outcome yeah you just use a idea you'll just add a block reference <laughs> uh, you can get the same outcome there it's just the the buttons that you push and the things that you do is slightly different. But, yeah. Ah, 
And also, Rome is like three or four times the price of bloody Obsidian, which is... Obsidian's free. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, And I I don't know whether people know this. I feel like I should say this now that we're talking about money a little bit, is yes, Obsidian Sync and Publish requires like payment. But if you have a student account, they offer a 40% discount. So (laughs) you, you can get Sync for, what is it? $8 $5, which isn't breaking a bank, I don't think, anyway. As a a student, I don't think it's breaking the bank, especially if you're going to be using Obsidian, which I don't see why you wouldn't. Yeah. And that's only for Sync, and you don't even need Sync. You could just use a cloud-based service like G Drive or Dropbox or something like that. I, I still need to do a video on that because they're some odd workflows in there because of the way that it doesn't quite sync some of the uh, behind the scenes files yeah um, i would imagine they probably don't i think the work yeah I, I i don't know i haven't figured it out but because obsidian sync is just so good like and you got version history inside of the obsidian app with obsidian sync so why wouldn't i do that I mean, every once in a while i push a button on my phone and delete a page but uh oops didn't mean to do that Go back to like my Obsidian on computer, right click version history. I'll oh, restore that one. Thank you. Like, you don't get that in G Drive. No. You might get it in Dropbox. I don't know. I don't use it. But it's, uh, it's just nice. I mean, yes, I have Obsidian Git as well to do the same sort of thing, but Obsidian Sync does it as well. So it's kind of like a, a backup of a backup. Mr. I don't need backups. Well, I don't have any backups like on my computer. It's all automatic. Exactly. (laughs) I don't need a backup. Uh, No, I really do. Yeah. I think Obsidian's going to slowly start coming back, like into the view of more people. I think what version one has done is because it looks good. Yeah. That's going to get like the whole aesthetic people. Be like, oh, it doesn't look like a robot built this. <laughs> um, so I think I think that's going to have a lot going for it. I think yeah. the tabs also has a lot going for it because not many apps have tabs. Notion. <laughs> well, you got tabs in the browser. Um, but yeah, and I mean, having... Have that was one it's of the things I said at the meetup. It's why I hated Rome. Because it was completely purely browser based. Well, no, that's a lot of the apps though. I think Tarn is browser based as well. No, oh, is it? Well, then it's never going to be used. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Tarn is just like Logseek. Um I don't think it uses Markdown because it's like the only app I can say Tarn is like is Remnote, and I don't like Remnote <laughs> because it. It uses the whole, hey, here's a block and we're going to use it for that, this and the other. And I'm like, I just know how writing works. Yeah, that's the thing that's putting me off it. I mean, I've signed up for the wait list because of course I have. Because I want to see what it's like. Yes. But I don't think it's even going to slightly work for me at all. I think we're obviously biased because we use Obsidian. But I write and I want to be able to write that 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 is the functionality that I don't think Tana could do for me. 
is the fact that I want to be able to write because every every outliner, every dot is in a, a block in itself, and and that's cool in theory. I like the idea of it in theory, but in practice, when I'm using it every day, that's going to do my nothing. Yes, yes, and that's why I think, for me, as someone that knows a lot about education, how we learn and things. I don't understand how block basing things helps education because essentially that's what a note taker is. It's helping us learn something, helping us remember something. I don't see how the block based stuff does that. I, I just can't see it. I don't see the advantage, the benefit. I, I don't know where it is. Um, and I mean, I've spoken with one of the guys from Tana because he wanted to have a look at my obsidian vault inside of Tana. So it's on Slack, so I haven't really responded. That's kind of like my bag, so I don't look at it because I really don't use Slack. But he was saying that he's he did a, his research into educational technology, which really intrigued me because technology traditionally has nothing to do with education and normally assumes cognitive psychology and assumes we have a brain like a machine, which I don't agree with. So, so these, these block-based, cloud-based tools that are forward thinking i don't think are <laughs> backward thinking yeah like when i look at people like um andrew huberman jordan peterson like both of those people are from kind of like different worlds jordan peterson's obviously psychology andrew huberman is neuropsych like neuroscience so neuroscience is cognitive psychology it's the machine like a brain it's figuring out the functions biochemistry whereas and um jordan peterson's psychology looking at the the human interactions sociology um psychology is often involved as well so they're from different fields but both of them use writing apps they use pen and paper and they use microsoft word or Google Docs, they they just yeah they just use writing apps, plain writing apps. They wouldn't be able to do <laughs> the plain writing stuff very well inside of a block app because it's a bulleted list, and a bulleted list is different from writing. It it just is. It functions differently. Yeah, and yes, you can hide the bullets and blah blah blah, but that's not the point. I don't... Because it functionally is, and I think this is what happened with Notion, because they were block-based mm. for so long, to the point where now they're not, they are block-based, but they're also not block-based, which quite frankly just actually bugs me <laughs> that they remove the block-basedness, even though it's not removed. Because now when I try to drag something, half the time I'm highlighting, and it's <laughs> bloody annoying. Like, it, my personal thing is I should have just stuck with what they had, because that was good for what it was. And not, yeah. But anyway, that's beside the bloody point. But I think that is like... I'm not saying blocks are bad. I certainly think there is a benefit to blocks. I mean, we use block IDs in Obsidian. We use yeah. blocks in Obsidian because when you click on something, it activates the block and you can see it. If you've got a CSS snippet like mine, uh, or you just like click on the thing and hope that you're moving the right block and hope the words underneath the lines are actually included in the block, which is why I added the CSS. Um, so I'm not saying blocks are bad. It's just when blocks are in your face, like, hey, yeah. this is a block, then it it irritates me. I'm like, yeah, but I, I don't want that grouped with that. And it's not necessarily grouped. It's just in your head, you sort of think, well, it's not in the same block, so now it's not the same thing. But it is. It is the same thing. Um, and I mean, when, when I'm typing inside of Obsidian, I'll leave 
like two line breaks just so I can like clear my head. Same as where you would on a piece of paper, you'd write something, you leave a bit of space, you write something, you go back. I don't find that as fluid in a block based app. No, it's, it's not. It's not as fluid. Obviously, this is personal preference. Biasing Obsidian, of course. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious with your note takey sort of stuff. Obviously, you're doing, from what you said earlier, you're doing stuff with audio. Have you tried the video, what's it, video embed editor plugin? Uh, maybe not. You might have seen Brian Jenks talk about it. It's like YouTube videos. You watch YouTube videos in Obsidian and then take timestamps and notes on it. No, I haven't. Yeah. What I found, which is why I wanted to ask this question, is that timestamps don't help me. Yeah. Yeah. Do, I don't do know. You... I haven't tried it yet. So oh, I don't okay. Know. But I, it was more of a like, oh, that's kind of cool. I wonder whether that would be helpful or useful. I don't think it's too helpful in video. It's more for audio for me. Longer form audio, I assume. Yes, yeah, like ebooks and long form hour plus long podcasts like this. Right, yeah. So you can navigate back. It's it's funny when I don't know whether it's me, but when I'm going through my notes, Andrew Huberman is a good example because his podcasts are normally like two plus hours long. I intuitively know roughly where the point was that I made it. Cool. I have no idea why, but yeah, when I'm listening, yeah, when I'm listening, well, when I'm listening to a podcast, I'm normally doing something. I can't, unless I'm watching it on YouTube, I can't listen and just sit. I have to do something. So I'll go walk around. Um, and I think there's no science proof yet that I can find, but memories are not just in your head, in the hippocampus of the brain. I think it's also a feeling. And when yeah. I'm going through my notes, it's a really surreal experience but i'll go through the podcast and in my head i will remember where i was listening to the point so like if i read through a point halfway down a, a human document uh, a human podcast episode i'm like oh yeah i was walking past this part of the beach at that point i was working around walking around the field at that point and i will then roughly know where it is in the podcast if i want to re-listen to it but when when i remember the place I then remember roughly what I was thinking about when I heard it. So I don't, I didn't even need to take notes because I'm like, oh yeah, that's that thing. And then when I carry on going down the original Obsidian note, I then see where I added the thought that I had originally. So it's kind of like, I remembered that I had the thought by seeing the original comment and remembering where I took it. <laughs> and I, I mean, unintentionally recalled the the new, the new note that I was going to have a look through next. And it's, it's this really odd experience when I'm going through it. That's so cool. Which which is one of the reasons that when when I see this memory research, I'm so hesitant because these experiences that I have, they can't be just me. <laughs> it can't be just me having this. But when I'm going, I, I, I can go through a, a random note, a random podcast note specifically because I've been out and done an experience, walked stuff from... Months ago, I, I I went over the um the ADHD um podcast thing uh, from Andrew Huberman. I went 
I listened to it and I went through that four and a half months afterwards. And I could still remember we walking around the houses down, like down my street. So I went on a different walk on that video. No idea why, but I did. I remembered like I had this massive conflict in my head when I heard uh, one of the things that he said inside of the podcast at the roundabout. And I knew it was at the roundabout because I remember looking to the sky and going, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I stopped. And when I went to walk again, there was like trees in me because I wasn't paying attention when I was going. And I was like, oh, I have to dodge a tree. Why I remember that specific experience, <laughs> I have no idea. And well, it's association, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I wouldn't have been able to recall it. You ask me, oh, where did you hear this thing? Where did you? I have no idea. But when I was reading through my notes of the podcast, I remembered that experience. I then recreated that experience, whether that's accurate or not. I can't say because I didn't know anything down. I didn't record it. Um, but that's what's going on in my head. And it, it put me back in that mental state when I was listening to it the first time. And then I just went off on one. And that's where when I'm researching, I can just go all over the place because obviously you then hear another note and then you get another experience and then that triggers another. And that's why I can sit and research for hours on end because I've experienced my learning rather than just listen to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's super interesting, actually. Yeah, I'd love to do that with YouTube videos, but you get through them so quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool, actually. I like that. Yeah, that's my um existential podcast experience. <laughs> Fantastic, love it. Um, we we came into this, and I I just spoke. What about you? Have you have you got? Wow, I'm really zoomed out. I've only just noticed this on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really zoomed up. Yeah. Um. So there is a. <laughs> here we go. Cue, cue the cringe. Neurodiverse Entrepreneur Summit happening that I am a speaker for. Just gonna pause there. He puts that away. <laughs> for people who are on the audio, <laughs> he literally was just like, "I'm gonna sit back, put my thing away, and not talk." Yeah, I, I hit my mic so you wouldn't be able to hear me swear. Okay, carry on. <laughs> and what I found really interesting is something that the person who's running it and the terminology she uses on, sorry, they use neuroidentity. And I was interested to to hear your thoughts on that because for me, that feels more accurate to my experience it's not a single a singular thing which is what we've discussed previously of like neurodiverse is the singular thing that we are and it and it blocks us in and it locks us in um which is the common like thing we speak about it's a binary of like either we have a superpower or we don't and on my instagram actually i do talk we talk about that but i really liked just like the lab the label of like your neuro identity because that is more yes it is still a label but it is for me far more accurate and i quite like that idea of and what is my neuro identity because there are pieces it, it it's more free flowing but it's still kind of almost the space that you're sitting within which i think is quite a nice alternative 
especially for me, like this is just my personal view, but I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that you have this massive thing with neurodiverse, like neurodiversity and that language and, and the, the real like shoving people into these boxes and the fact self-fulfilling prophecies of, oh, I have ADHD. So I'm like this, 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 and this, and I have to see this, 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 and this, which from my conversations with multiple people in that space, they also agree it sucks. <laughs> Everyone is in agreement, but the way that socially it's become, especially on social media is like, oh, I do this. I do that. I'm all this. Oh, well, if I'm this, I have to be. It, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I'm not sure whether it is quite self-fulfilling as it seems when you actually talk to people in real life versus online. Um, but I do love the like the neuro identity. I align with far more and feels more. It feels better. But I'm intrigued at your like science brain of thoughts on it. Science brain of thoughts. Okay. Yes. Um, I I'm going to ask a question before I give my initial thoughts. Uh, what is it about the term? Is it the neuro bit or the identity bit? I think it's the two together. It's the fact that it is well to me neuro is the is brain identity that's what i that's my meaning that i've tied to it and that sort of makes sense but also doesn't like the brain identity it's like all of the pieces in my brain the way that my brain functions and by brain i am not just talking about this fleshy piece i'm talking about like cognition as well and and all of the extended stuff there as well um but i like it as almost a shorthand for all of the stuff that we talk about. And it is a marketing term. I'm I'm not even gonna try and yeah. pretend it's not. But it's 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 so much one of the big struggles for my business is most of my audience, from my understanding, are neurodiverse. Neurodiverse. They identify as that because the way that my brain works is different from neurotypical people. And we could go that but we'll go there in a minute. But like but I find neuro identity is more fitting. So question, who isn't neurodiverse? Yeah, but mm, we're all neurodiverse. That's the problem, <laughs> which is the problem, which is the bit that that keeps sticking me the neurodiverse thing. Well, we are all, we all have diverse brains, but the, the neurodiverse like neurodiversity like that piece of it is shorthand for something else and i feel that the shorthand isn't quite it misses things the re the reason i ask is i'll, I'll use an analogy like a comparative analogy active recall is not a term used in academic academic literature because you can't passively recall something. It's just not possible. So active is a redundant word in the term. And recall isn't accurate because you don't recall things, you retrieve things. Yeah. Um, they might sound similar, but the actual functions of the brain, it's not quite the same because you recreate something. So you're retrieving certain memories to recreate something else. Um, so it's retrieval. And then we actually add another word called practice because to learn something, you need to practice it. So it's retrieval practice, not active recall. And when I hear neuroidentity, what isn't neuro? What what doesn't have a brain? Yeah. 
like so i'm trying to find like what is the purpose of the word there i think the so for me the purpose of the word is it, it's almost a form of the way you work so it, it may be a little jargony which could be the point there but we all have different neuro identities. Our neuro identity is different. It is the multiple pieces of the way that we work that come together, like we've spoken about before, like our systems of the way we work. Um, and I find that more. Yeah. But you said, even though you didn't like it, you said that everyone is neurodiverse to different degrees. Yes. So how can you not be or not have a neuro identity. I, I don't think there, there's a negative to it. There's no, you can't be this thing. And I think that's the point I'm making. Whereas in the way that society has seen neurodiverse is not the way that we, like the way that mm -hmm. we view neurodiverse is different. Yeah. And the common, the common language of neurodiverse is that there's something that needs to change. It's a disorder or a problem or a thing. Whereas for me, I find neuroidentity more almost, there is no negative to it. And it also encompasses all the stuff that we spend quite a long time on this podcast talking about, mm -hmm. which for a marketing marketing stance is far easier. It oh. allows a, sh a little bit of, yeah. For, from a marketing perspective, makes total sense. Uh, personally, I don't like it. The reason I don't like it is what's the difference between neuroidentity and identity? what's the difference neuro you have a group of people but that group of people we've already established like in our views it doesn't really it's not they don't exist it's a social construct we have created to formulate this community this tribe of people because you're all like me sort of in some ways <laughs> so Neuroidentity is still saying, hey, if you're not neurodiverse or if you don't identify with neurodiverse, you don't have these identities, which I don't think is true. But I think that's the message it's sending. As someone that doesn't identify as neurodivergent, I would mm. see that as, well, you're, that's that's still neurodivergent stuff. I'm still not interested. Interesting. Yeah. Because you've still got that bucket that and categorization at the front. Yeah, you're still assuming neurodivergence is a thing, is a subject, has um, some sort of root somewhere, somehow in, mm -hmm. in society, which it does. But I don't think it's significant enough to really have an impact in anything. <laughs> like, we are different. We have different personalities. We have different characteristics and we identify in different ways. So why do we need to add something at the beginning? That That's my question. Why do we need it there? Hmm. To me, she's just she's narrowing down the audience, which for marketing, which is, is exactly what you want to do. Exactly what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I marketing, think that... it's exactly what it would do. But when it comes to the philosophy, the psychology and what I would class as the science behind the, the research, yeah. I don't like the term. And that's why Active Recall does really well on YouTube. And retrieval practice doesn't. Retrieval practice yeah, because... is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> active Recall isn't accurate, but it's catchy. It's like, oh, yeah, Active Recall, this, that, and the other. So how, how do you, like, I suppose for you in marketing, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I... 
because that's interesting because like as you are now transitioning into a business brain because you have been very like it's been science focused there's no marketing in what you do but now you're in that state where you want to market yourself and i'm intrigued for you like what will anything change as you're shifting into a business perspective because from i completely like i get what you're saying and yes but but and it's not even like a person like it used to be when we had these conversations it's like oh my god you are attacking my identity but i know you're not you're not even attacking anything you're just like well what's the point and i think what the point is is it's it, it's marketing it's 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 natural niching so to speak which i think is quite which I hate niching anyway, but that's beside the darn point. But like from a marketing perspective, what happens if we use language differently? Because like for me, like as I'm talking about this summit, I'm using the language that the neurodiverse language, which is not incorrect and it's not, it's interesting. But I think like the perception of that for me there is a conflict that I probably from a marketing perspective, if I marketed myself as a neurodiverse uh, consultant or coach or business systems person, I would do way better. <laughs> like if you market to that audience, really, yeah. Like I, I am marketing specifically to the right audience, but there is a part of me that's just like, yeah, but that doesn't. Mm. Mm, yeah there is like that feeling of like mm, yeah i get that but also there are people who don't identify as neurodiverse but i can damn well help them because the con the, the things that i do the support that i give supports them as well because they work differently which is why my language has been if you're if you work differently to the way that everybody else tells you if you think differently to the way that you're told to work and it doesn't work for you and so from a marketing perspective like if i wanted to easily and i have been pushed by my coaches to use neurodiverse and i am still hyper resistant to that now for me neuroidentity is sort of the same thing but not the same thing because there is less stigmatism but what i find interesting is you still think yeah fuck that <laughs> which i think is quite interesting I, I think you you prefer the identity bit because it brings in what i would class as natural sciences like identity yeah. is what it, it's just globally accepted like everyone has an identity everyone knows that it doesn't matter whether you're 70 or whether you're seven like everyone has an identity and you know the word yeah neuro and what neuro means means different things to different people and it starts segregating people yeah my my approach to marketing is to use the terminology used in academia and i yeah. i want to say exactly what i do so i am an educational scientist if people say what does an educational scientist look at i can then list out <laughs> loads of big words <laughs> or loads of areas of research and give some examples. Yeah. So I'm explaining exactly what I do in mm. words they're familiar with, mm. but they don't actually grasp that much depth in what it means. Like when I say educational scientist, most people think of, oh, you school stuff, like education in school. And I'm like, yes, but also yeah. 
loads of other things. And what does education in school mean? Education in school means pedagogy. It means teaching children, because that's what school is most of the time. When they think education for adults, they think university. They don't think outside of university, most people. But that's what it is, because when you're teaching adults, you're still just teaching adults, whether in use, uh, in university or out of it, they're still there. Um, the reason I've marketed my course and my template as extended brain is because it's simple to, excuse me, it's simple to grasp. It's marketable when it comes to like the terminology, because second brain, ultimate brain, it's similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not wrong academically because mm. extending the brain through definition is cognition. Yeah. Like extending the brain is what cognition is. And then extended cognition is the area that I'm talking about, but you okay. say extended cognition and people get confused because what's cognition. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm still true to my academic like roots. So I'm super intrigued. If you were to do what I do, what would you do? Um, I've actually thought I have, that. I have the simplicity specialist. I have that. Mm-hmm. But even that in itself is it. I, I, for me, I view that in a similar way to what you had as like the educational psychology, the, the educational thing. Mm. It's it's almost a similar name. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So for me, when it comes to like the the front facing stuff, make making the words as simple as of uh, simple as possible. Yeah, great. Um, but when it comes to explaining what it is that you do, that's where nuance gets involved and context gets involved. Mm. So. When it comes to explaining what I do, I change my explanation depending on the person I'm speaking to, Mm. Uh, which I don't think people that box themselves in can do very well. An analogy that I want to make here um, is when, so I use Obsidian, but when people ask me questions, I don't say, hi, I'm an Obsidian PKM coach, consultant, whatever. I, that's not what I would say. I would say I'm PKM, personal knowledge management. I don't box myself into an app. I don't say I'm only Notion. I'm only Obsidian. I'm only Remnant. Yes. Mm. When you say I'm neurodivergent, you're boxing yourself into yeah. a neurodivergent group. So as a personal knowledge management individual, I have expertise in Obsidian, but I also have expertise yeah. in Obsidian. In Notion. And I yeah. have some expertise in other applications that are similar, i.e. Logseek. So the neurodivergent group, well, I have expertise in ADHD, different levels of ADHD. I have expertise in autism. I have expertise in whatever other thing that you want to put under that bracket. I don't have expertise in those things over there, but I mm. can do simplifying systems or whatever it is that you do. Uh, and that's how, in my mind, I look at coaches, mentors, and skill acquisition, essentially, is you have expertise in specific contexts and areas, but not in others. And when you look at what an effective coach is, it's in a specific context. Yeah. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. And so for you, it's depending on on who you talk to, the language or quote-unquote niche, if we use business terminology, changes. Yeah. I've worked with... I've worked with some people that use Rome mm-hmm. uh, and obviously I changed my terminology because inside of Obsidian, it's a block ID inside of Rome. It's a block reference. So there's small terminology differences. I need an expertise in both applications to understand the differences. Yeah. Um, I can't speak as deeply about Rome as I can in, as Obsidian, 
but the shallow understanding of their processes, their systems, what they could, couldn't do, should, shouldn't do, things like that, it, it's still um, transferable across platforms. So interestingly, if if you were in my shoes, how you would speak when you're speaking to someone who is neurodiverse and identifies with that, the language you would use would be specific of like, I have expertise in autism, in ADHD, in you know, anxiety in depression in all of these feet, you're mu- you would be very specific on that versus just using the label of neurodiverse or neuro identity. Like it would be like, these are my expertise. You'd list it out almost like a CV, so to speak of like, here's what I can do. Here's what I can do. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I- here's where my expertise lies. And that's up to you. So I'm going to use another sporting example, because that's where I'm from. That's where most of my research comes from. If you say you're a football coach and you coach football, that's great. But if you coach six-year-olds and you're asked to manage an adult team, are you going to be any good? Probably not. (laughs) Because coaching six-year-olds and coaching professional adult football players are drastically different. So you have expertise in the same sport, but different people. Yeah. So that's interesting because that strips away all of the nonsense. And I'm still, I am marketing myself as a neurodiverse person. But I'm also being far more tailored and specific, closer to the, mm, I reluctantly say science, because when you look at the science of the conditions, it's it just gets more and more pseudo problematic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is more, it is saying what I do without labeling people, like specializing in working with autistic, ADHD, anxiety, yeah i mean that when when you look at um again using sport as an example because i think it's the easiest to grasp when Mm. when you look at coaches some coaches i I mean even look at genders like if you take a a sunday league boys football coach and you put them in a girls team they're gonna suck trust me i've experienced it they suck at it because girls and boys play football drastically different their physicality is different i know there's loads of other stuff that we could get in like political stuff but generally speaking girls develop earlier than boys girls have other issues than boys boys play football completely differently and when you look in the uk football system boys football is about i can kick the ball harder than you i'm better than you girls football is not like that (laughs) boys football if you mature early you're going to be the big centre forward that can smash a ball really hard, or everyone's probably seen the rugby clip of the massive, the massive boy that runs in rugby and just beats everyone up, like just runs them all over. Relative age effect, loads of other stuff involved in sport, but that person is developed differently. In the female game, you still have similar people, but it's not the same. So the coaching has to be different. The work has to be different. The expertise in areas have to be different. And you've even seen it in the way that like humans develop some people develop tendencies to injure themselves more in one way than the other because of um hypermobility so if someone's working in trampoline or gymnastics one of the sports sports i'm interested in the coach needs to know what hypermobility is a football coach doesn't care what hypermobility is all they care about is can you kick a ball hard and can you run for 90 minutes so the demands the expertise changes with the context and the environment. So the expertise then needs to change from the coach. And if the coach doesn't say that, well, it's kind of useless. In sport, it's obvious. I go to a trampoline club. I know I'm going to get coached for trampoline because they've got an NGB qualification for that thing. Go to football, same thing. You look at- And whereas in business, we don't have that at all. In business, oh, I'm a coach. Or what type of coach? 
And that's also been like my struggle, like as someone who understands enough of the science to be dangerous, um, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not enough. That's so lacking in information and, and actual context. And so one of the things that I've been like, this is a big thing that's in my head at the moment is I have simplicity specialist that pretty much sums up what I do relatively easy. But it's the next part because I have expertise. What's your elevator pitch? I don't have one. Interesting. So as a in my second year at uni, uh, halfway through my second year at uni, we were talking about philosophy of practice as part of our core modules. Um, and we were asked, what's your elevator pitch? If you had a, a top level coach at whatever sport club you want to work at, obviously we're talking sport here, what would you say to them? If you get into an elevator, they they used um, Mourinho as the example, because at the time Mourinho was kind of at the top. And then obviously now Guardiola's there. These are football managers for those unfamiliar with football. Yeah. So, uh, but they said, if you got in an elevator with this person uh, and you wanted to work for them, you want to be a coach for them, what would you say? Elevator pitch is very similar with business. Most people would say the general general oh i can do this i can do that i can coach here i can i have expertise in that everyone's got expertise in that i mean at university everyone with a sports coaching degree has a sports coaching degree there's no point saying i have a sports coaching degree so what so do thousands of others it's the it's the nuance that's actually important yeah and so for me i suppose i don't have a business elevator pitch that i help these people do these things that that doesn't i i i reject that completely (laughs) <laughs> you have an elevator pitch but it's for each individual you'd pitch yes. it differently to each individual yes so what what tendencies would you have with those individuals that's what i look at as a philosophy of practice if i was to speak mm. to 100 different people i look at 10 football 10 trampoline 10 rugby whatever and i'm becoming an snc coach because that was my master's degree there were things that i lean towards so yeah. i don't lean towards okay let's get you as strong as possible because yeah. you're strong without mobility. So I I would lean towards, okay, I want you to be a functional individual. I want you to be functionally movable. I don't want you to be massive, but not be able to touch your back because your arms are too big. Like You want mobility and flexibility and strength and power. And I would explain that. So it shows that I have understanding and expertise in the field. And it shows that I've chosen to ignore some things and pick other things because of my understanding of the context they are in. Mm. so you would have a different it's almost a slightly different pitch so the commonalities is things like you know autism adhd adhd seems to be a really common one at the moment Uh, trending but i would i wouldn't say they are i wouldn't say they're areas of expertise no no because if you say adhd as we've said what is adhd so okay so what i would say then is my, I suppose, speciality is helping people to adapt the way that they work to them. Which, is that still fuzzy? Yeah. So that's the problem. The way I would pitch it, for for me in a sporting context, I'll take mobility as an example, because most of the time when I was Mm. speaking to players or coaches, whatever, they'd ask why, how, what. So if we take trampoline, most of them are flexible. They don't need flexibility. Like they can already touch their toes without like, straighten it, uh, bending their legs or anything so i'd say i know you're mo- you're you're flexible you're mobile but if you're too mobile you can get injured so we're going to 
build up your strength. We don't want to build it up too much, so we need some power in there. So I would use what they currently do or what they already have and say, I know you're already good at this, but you're likely to struggle with this either in the future or at some point. So we're going to try and help this bit out. Or I know they're struggling with something. So in football, a lot of them aren't mobile, but because they're not very mobile, it means they're strong. So I will say, I'm going to add some mobility and flexibility to you to prevent injury. That's why I'm doing it but we're not going to reduce the strength you have because we're going to maintain that. So it keeps their strengths up, but helps their weakness. Interesting. Interesting. So from my perspective, people, the people who I primarily work with, if I look at like the, the traits, so to speak, that they have, they are very like driven. They love to, they, they are problem solvers because if you're an entrepreneur, you have to be a problem solver. That is just fucking Duh. Yeah. yeah. So you, you can't do it without it. Yeah, you don't you just can't run a business if you don't if you don't have problem solving skills. And they're also incredibly like they're very like purpose. I hate the phrase, but purpose driven. They they are driven by something. But often the things that they struggle with is that is that it's the overwhelm in their brain because they, they're trying to process too much information. And it's about taking the purpose that they want and the actions matching the purpose. Because they know what they want to do. They know what they want. But what they don't know is how to get there. How do you know? How do you know they don't know how to get there? Oh, I love that. Because so how I know that they they haven't got there is because they're consistent. That, that's not what I asked. How so, do I know? How how do you know they don't know how to get there? That's what you said. You you said mm. they don't know how to get there. Maybe they do know how to get there. They just don't know something in action to put that in practice. Ah, uh, yeah, that is more accurate. Because yeah, like, that's true. Sp- speaking for myself, I know how to get a lot. I know how to get to a lot of places. I just either don't have the stepping stones to get there, don't have the motivation to start that route, don't know what actions to start with, don't know who to go to. So it's not I don't know how to get there. It's I don't know what step I need to do first, or I don't know what I need to put down to pick that up. What you just said. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Otter. I will be stealing that. <laughs> that is literally yeah but that is exactly what it is it's the first step to take or if you know what first step to take it's something else it's that that makes sense yeah so it's it's looking it's looking not at the the big thing strength flexibility mobility or i want to get this thing i want to get that thing it's why and how do you get there what, yeah. what exactly do you want to do or do you want to stop or maintain so i like that I mean, this this sort of stuff, though, is what I learned first year, second year, and a little bit of third year in my undergrad in sports coaching. But it's transferable directly into business because they are literally the same profession. They're talking to other people, helping other people do something. Performance. It is performance-based. Business is performance-based. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And what I don't understand is why the two professions don't speak, because the business research, sorry, is crap. Um, Oh, Oh, yes, it is. But the coaching research is extremely robust. Um, especially in pedagogy and children's education. And when you look at how children and adults learn, and adults learn, a lot of the pedagogy isn't children-focused. It's beginner-learner-focused. 
yes, there are elements of children that aren't in adults. So there are some assumptions there, but that's we'll, we'll deal with that in the science. <laughs> but a lot of the things that it speaks about that has evidence for is applicable to adults because most adults yeah. are at the beginning of their journey and learning whatever it is. Why can't business people use this research? Why can't they do that? Obviously, they don't look at sports coaching because business people aren't interested in sports, especially sports coaching, because it's not a profession, apparently. Sports coaching isn't a profession. It's just a, a volunteer job. Yeah, okay, right. Because um, <laughs> you don't get enough money for it. Like, wait, when you look is at the actual... What, is that actually what... The, coaching isn't a profession. Sports coaching is not a profession, technically. Yeah, exactly. But when you look at the research... Like you can be a professional manager, but like being a being a professional coach, you have to be getting paid according to a profession, which requires you to be part of a, prof of a professional club, but a professional club in a sport that has money. Yeah. And there's like three or four of them. <laughs> even even professional athletes on the world stage have jobs because they can't yeah. find themselves doing things like unless you're a professional football player, like good luck. That's crazy, but yeah. And when you think about the amount of research behind sports coaching, like that's all neuroscience, all cognitive science, psychology, philosophy. Yeah, every time I look it up, I'm I'm back in sports, which is really interesting. It's which I think is amazing, is. but it's not brought into the business world. It's not brought into any world, and that's it's one of the it's one of the <laughs> you know like the twelve favorite problems that people like talking about. It's yeah. one of those things that I have in my head. I, I don't have it articulated into a problem, but it's more of a question as why is the research in sports coaching so marginalized? Yeah. yeah. Why is yeah. it so hidden? Um, Malcolm Gladwell, is, he's done loads of different books. The relative age effects that he spoke about, he was 20 years like after the original suggestion of it. And there was loads of, re and there's loads of research of it now, but it comes from sport. And he applied it into education and people started paying attention when it was in education, but they forgot about the sports stuff. But all the applicability inside of sport obviously happens in everywhere you have sport, which is in school, in like personal clubs as well. But what happens inside of sport also happens inside of school. So that's not just the relative age effect, but the social agents of the relative age effect, the Galatea effect, the Matthew effect, the Pygmalion effect, all of them self-fulfilling prophecies that can change how we act, how we behave as individuals involved and as coaches and as parents. The social agents of relative age effect impact everyone. But if you're not inside of sport, inside of the relative age effect research, you ain't got a clue. Parents yeah. should know this stuff. They just don't because it's not anywhere in popular media. So annoying. Oh, and there's so many other things I could rant on about, but I'm not going to because that would be like years because I've been researching this stuff for years. <laughs> and no one watches it on YouTube because they don't know about it. <laughs> so how do you, how, like, how do you know about it? Are you asking me or are you asking as someone that wants to know? Mm, as someone who wants to know. Um, you would need to find someone that speaks about the topics it's essentially research unfortunately mm. i've i've tried doing research into like the journalist world of like news outlets and stuff the last time the relative age effect was mentioned on the bbc news which is like 
the biggest news in the UK, uh, was back in 2013. Yeah. And the relative age effect impacts everyone all the time. Um, and and that's a direct search for relative age effect from what I can find. When it comes to the implicit presentations of what this could happen, and you look at just education on the news, it's like 2016, 17, but it's like a reach. You've got to really reach for it. You need to know what the relative age effect is and see it in the, the thing. Um, but most the people, most of the journalists that talk about learning is education, has to be in the education uh, sector. And it's about people struggling to get good grades, which is literally sports coaching. They just don't talk about it. Um, or people struggling to learn. So special needs in some case, whether that's being colorblind, having ADHD, needing support, um, being disabled for whatever reason, needing specialist equipment, that sort of stuff. All those things are spoken about but not the actual how they learn or how we help them learn or why the F is the curriculum so bad. Uh, <laughs> and it's, so it's not in the public face, mm. which drives me nuts. It's even worse in America. Um, and um, that's not me just saying it. It's just like sports coaching in America because sports coaching is different because sport in America is much bigger than it is in the UK. The sports coaching world is this. When I said worse, I didn't mean worse as in not shown. I meant worse as in misunderstood because it's a profession in America. You have coaches I, like in, in commas coaches talking about their science, but it's not science. It's their experience. And they don't look at the science a lot of the time. And they start talking about these things. Oh, we need to do this and need to do that. And they misunderstand the science because they haven't looked at it. And the UK haven't got to that point yet where you've got the gurus talking about it. America's at that point where you've got gurus talking about sports coaching. You're like, yeah. ah, not right. Um, so I kind of want England to leapfrog that step. It's not going to happen. It's not the way society works. Um, but yeah, in, in America, you've got a harder job of finding this, the sports coaching research because you've got gurus talking about stuff that isn't quite accurate. How do you know about that? You need to know to research. How do you know how to research? Well, you need to develop certain skills, which you'd need to go look for, which you need time for, which is just a pain in the bum. And yeah, we're now in a cycle of research. So where do you start? With an interest. If you have an interest, i.e. a child, <laughs> at going to school and they're struggling with something, look up something using something like Elicit, maybe Google Scholar. I would probably go Elicit because I think it's more intuitive to ask a question in there and get an answer. Um, and be like, okay, how do I help my child learn this thing? <laughs> and you're going to get papers with pedagogy in there. It's going to take you some time to understand, just like with all research. But as soon as you grasp a couple of the takeaways and you start getting into the world, as you've experienced, it will just point you that way. You'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Where That's in sport. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Where Oh, that's in sport. And you'll start to make the connections. But yeah. I'm intrigued because there's a couple of papers that I've been reading recently and I'm just like, oh, I wonder if I go down to the references, how quickly I'll get into sport. <laughs> what were they about? Uh, I can't remember. It's in my Zotero. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Just like, I don't need to know. Uh, so one of the ones that I looked at recently was having too little or too much time is linked to lower subjective well-being. So that's one of those areas that 
won't have you wouldn't be able to find it if you're looking for it but if you know the research field like someone that's been in it for years you'll know where the connections are so when you're looking into the psychology research of motivation time uh drive and then you marry that with how the interactions between so coach athlete relationship coach parent relationship inside of those sorts of papers they'll start talking about how much time you spend somewhere what what time you spend doing maintenance work and doing other things where um periodization starts to come involved is when you look at things like the the olympic blues i don't know whether you've heard of it but the olympic blues is when athletes go to the olympics they're on this massive high when they leave the olympics they have this massive drop of emotions and everything and a lot of them fall into depression after the olympics Mm. most people don't know this um but there's a whole research field about the olympic blues and that's related to motivation time focused on certain things and how psychology impacts people's preparation for that big is events bloody fascinating and drop off of the events <laughs> yeah but i mean that, that can be related to business in seconds i'm or my brain is already going yeah that, that happens with launches and bigger launches which is why mini launches are actually more valuable for a business owner because it's a smaller launch, less time. It's quicker. It's more like. And how do you manage the drop off? Do you jump straight back into training in business? Do you jump straight back into something else? Or do you have an active space of recovery? And if you do recover, how do you do it? Is it passive and you sit and do nothing? According to the research, that's not a good idea. You need to actively recover. And there's loads of different ways. Which to actually to this recover. paper does touch on. Um, there you go. There's the links. Wow, that's so cool. So basically, anytime I look at a paper, I throw it at you and you go, this one, this one, and this one. No, you need to do your own research. <laughs> but th this is this is something that I'm struggling from my side, is I have yeah. expertise. How do I share that expertise? Mm. The conversations we have, I think, are quite easy to share the expertise that I have because there are a lot of the topics overlap. Yeah. But when I'm talking about the expertise that I have inside of YouTube videos, because they're so short, they're so nuanced, it's hard to get that thing across. So how do I share what I have apart from just talking to someone? Because like I said, it's so specific to the person I'm speaking to. Yeah. I can't do a 10 tips for this, three tips for that, five stages of whatever. Because my research is too deep to do a 10 minute video on. I'm thinking of doing like a Thomas Nicholas video. <laughs> Do you know who that is? No, I don't think so. Uh, he's a YouTuber. He's a politically based YouTuber. He's from the UK. Um, and his his degree and PhD was in political something or other. Um, and he looks at mainly political arguments. A recent video that he put out, uh, I think it was yesterday, was on the trans movement and looking at how it's portrayed in media and the pros and cons. And it's like a 49 minute video of going backwards and forwards with arguments um, with stages. It's very similar to a philosophy tube with longer documentary yeah. style videos. And those people are very intelligent. There is certainly a bias in their presentation because they're human, um, but they're well-produced video documentaries on a topic. And that's the direction I think I would need to go if I want to talk about my research, because doing doing a 10 minute video on something isn't long enough yeah to get the nuance but i don't that, have i yeah. don't have the time <laughs> to do 
I mean, a 40 minute video. His Thomas Nicholas works on a video for like a month and a half. Yeah. It, it's full scripting. It's literally writing. It's like writing a book every month. Yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a different topic. And I feel like, I feel like that's what I want to do inside of Obsidian. Ali's writing a book at the moment. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, maybe I could write a book. But I don't think I'd want to write a book. Because I'd want to speak it. Mm. Do an audiobook. Yeah, it's not the same. I'd want to speak it. I'd want to present the ideas so I can get my tonality. People can understand the emotion behind the words. That's what I would want. But I hate editing when it's not easy. I don't have expertise in cameras, audio, etc. I mean, at the moment, I'm still fuffing around with my mic because it's decided to blip out every once in a while. And like the whole lighting situation, I know how to do it. I know how to do the color grading. It just doesn't excite me. It's like, okay. And so that's where me as the business person goes, hire someone. Exactly. And and that's where I'm at at the moment in my head when it comes to research. I know where I'm going with Obsidian. So my next couple of months, I'm sorted. I'm fine. I I, I know the focus. But long-term focus, documentary-style videos on my research is where I'd love to go. Mm. So it's kind of like, can I just hire out a studio, them just record stuff, <laughs> send it to me, and then I'll do the edit, maybe? I really don't know. Um I've been going. I've been going backwards and forwards in my head about it. I mean, I've got a teleprompter as well because I know Thomas, uh, Tom Nicholas, uses a teleprompter because he scripts out his videos and then uses stuff. I practice with a teleprompter. I don't like it. I can read it. I can use it. I just don't like it because I'm looking at the teleprompter, and when you naturally speak, you don't look directly at someone. You look around the room to try and remember what's going on, and it doesn't feel as natural. Mm. I also lose some of the tonality and the emphasis that I have on my words, because some sections I speak very, very quickly, other sections I slow down to try and emphasize certain points, which with a teleprompter is hard to do because it moves just in a sequence. Yeah. Problem for another day. <laughs> yeah, and one which stops me from doing YouTube entirely. <laughs> But the YouTube videos that I'm doing now are performing better. Like the video I'm looking at, Zotero Integration Plugin, it took me 20 minutes to record it, half an hour to edit it. It took me like two minutes to do the thumbnail because I've templated everything again, like I did with the Notion ones. Uh, and then I published it and it's got 740 views in 20 hours, which is good on my channel. It's number three at the moment. Yeah. And I can just rinse and repeat those. I mean, I've got 600 potential videos because there's 600 potential plugins I could do reviews on. <laughs> oh dear. oh yeah that's funny but yeah so the the youtube stuff can be easy and it is easy if you've got like a template and you're just a process that goes through oh i know but it's boring mm. the, this conversation is exactly why i haven't done an adhd video because i'm like i need to do this justice yeah uh, it's, yeah yeah it's just not like that. That is my problem with YouTube. I know how to quote unquote win at YouTube. It's easy. I create a system, I go. But my reaction is just like, why? Yeah. Nah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I what what I'll do is I'll create these videos, get really popular, and do all the, and then I will change. 
and then the viewership will go down. Blah blah blah. blah, 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 blah. You've, ju- you've just summarized my YouTube journey. <laughs> I know I have. I've watched you on your journey, and every time I'm like, oh, I might come back. I might come back, and then I just like, nah. It's effort. Yeah, it is, and I have enough effort in. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's something. That's something people don't realize. Like when they see a video go out, they're so quick to judge it, and I'm like. You realize how much effort goes into a lot of this stuff? I know I say, oh, it doesn't take too much time. Now. <laughs> now. It took me a while to figure this shit out. When, when you look at most of the successful creators on YouTube, they have maintained their success. Not the ones that get overnight success from a viral video, get loads of views, and then flop off in the next three months. The ones that maintain it. They've been making videos for five plus years. Mm. Ali, yes, grew his channel in three years, but he was creating content, online content on blogs and things two, three years beforehand. The same with Thomas Frank. He's been online for almost 15 years now, I think. Matt Diavella has been creating films way beforehand when he started his YouTube channel. Uh, and when you look at most other creators, they take years. Mr. Beast, he he took, I think it was like two years before he got his first, first thousand subscribers. What? Now, obviously, it's like 100 and something million, earning millions and millions and millions. But he's been on YouTube for years. Learning and honing a skill is practice. So takes time, takes effort. And I mean, I'm learning how to edit. I, I like I like learning how to edit. Actually, I'm going to rephrase that. I like the idea of learning how to edit. Because the actual learning part is the practice. So this is one of those other questions I'm trying to figure out. What does learning mean? Because mm. it's learning, watching. You something. like the process of. Yeah, but is gaining. Is it... is it learning? What is learning? Is it practice? If it is practice, then do you have to have something beneficial from the practice or not? And there's loads of other questions. This is a never-ending question that I will never get to. We won't get to the end to in this episode. So save that for another time. We'll put that in another episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how long have we been going for? An hour. But it's half 11 now. Hour and a half. Cool. So I think we should close it out because this is the longer episode. Probably the longest episode we've done in a while, actually. Yeah, well, we sort of did like two topics. It's sort of split in half. Um, because cool. of it. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>